Welcome to the Journal.ie's The Explainer, where every week we take a deep dive into a different news story. I'm Sinead O'Carroll, and this week, how could Golfgate impact Irish people's behaviour? I have never seen a reaction to a story like we have experienced in the aftermath of Golfgate. Not even when the IMF came to town do I remember such an outpouring of emotion from the country. Liveline last Friday was a cathartic process the country seemed to need in the wake of our 1777 COVID-19 deaths. There we shared stories of closed funerals, missed weddings and lost connections. The 81 people, including a senior minister, a Supreme Court judge and an EU commissioner who attended a golf function in Clifton were the target for our palpable anger. Somehow though, and I wrote this on my own Twitter account on Friday, it seemed like the day was almost cohesive rather than divisive, as many political controversies are given the nature of party affiliations. And it led us to think on the explainer team about how it could impact people's behaviour and also widening it out a bit further. What are the biggest things that impact our behaviour during these lockdowns and during the restricted parts of our life as this pandemic rages around us? So I'm delighted to be joined by Professor Pete Lone, head of the Behavioural Research Unit at the ESRI. And we're going to take a look at just that widening it out and seeing what is impacting our behaviours during this time. So Pete, what is the biggest impact on how we react to the restrictions in our lives. The most important thing to understand, I think, about people's behaviour during this pandemic, and this has been true from the moment it really started, is that their behaviour is very much determined by the social circumstances that they are in. So there is, of course, one level at which people are just straightforwardly frightened. I mean, here is a disease that can do you quite a lot of damage. Uh, depending on your risk profile and your age and so on. But there are reasons to be frightened of it just as an individual. And I think there are times when we think, well, people's behavior is essentially about self-preservation. But actually, as a behavioral scientist, that turns out not to be the case. Um, It really is quite social phenomenon. People straightforwardly understand that when, as a community, we are under threat in this way, that everybody's behavior interacts with everybody else's behavior, And they realize that in order to fight the virus, um, what they need to do is coordinate, that we all need to coordinate. And that means that our behavior is much more socially determined than that simple model of saying, you know, how much risk do people perceive and how worried are they about their own health? In fact, they're largely concerned about how they behave compared to everybody else how they're perceived to behave compared to everybody else. Is everybody else doing what they are doing? And what is the logic of us all doing what we're being asked to do? And what's the outcome that we might get from that? And if people don't behave in the way that we've all agreed we should, what are the consequences and what will we do about it? So there is a really strong social element to behavior throughout this crisis. And what part of that is the the stick approach, like getting caught, like getting embarrassed or even in worst in like most extreme scenario, getting a fine or, or a court appearance from the Gardaí? It's actually quite a small part of it, but it's an important part of it. So behavioral scientists have studied this kind of problem and they come in with multiple names. I mean, there's academic jargon for all this stuff, but I mean, you hear them called collective action problems, public good, goods games common pool resource problems, all of these things, social dilemmas, all of these pieces of jargon essentially describe the same thing, which is where people have an incentive to behave selfishly, which is at odds with their incentive to behave for the common good. 
And we've studied these kind of problems at this stage for about 40 years, and the findings are pretty straightforward. Where you have people in these situations, actually the large majority of people will make sacrifices, so they won't do the selfish thing, they will make sacrifices, they will behave for the common good, provided they can clearly understand and it's clearly communicated to them what it is that everybody's supposed to be doing and why it will work. So they need to see the logic of it, the logic of how the collective action will develop a goal that's best for everybody. They need to feel that they're part of a coherent group or community that's all trying to do this. And there needs to be a degree of punishment for those who transgress. That shouldn't be disproportionate. It shouldn't be out of the ordinary, but it needs to be there that you know, there is a majority who are going to do it right. And if they see a minority breaking ranks and not doing what everyone else is supposed to do, then those people need to be picked up upon. And social disapproval can sometimes be enough or some degree of explicit punishment, but nothing that's over the top, just enough to remind them, hang on a minute, we're all supposed to be doing this in order to get this outcome. And if you don't do this, there'll be consequences. When does time play a factor then? When does it become too long to be in the in the same level of behavior that's not the norm so that's a really good question and right from the start there has been a public perception and i think particularly a perception in the media which uh, has suggested that somehow there's a kind of time limit on people's willingness to make these sacrifices for the common good that there's a kind of natural element of if you like fatigue that will mean that people will eventually just give up the behavioral evidence actually suggests otherwise the behavioral evidence suggests that people will make sacrifices for a long period of time, provided it's clear why they're doing it, provided everybody else is doing it, provided they're well led. There's all kinds of provisos, but it is possible to sustain this sort of collective sacrifice in pursuit of a common goal for quite long periods of time. I think there's a confusion at the heart of this, actually, which is something like this, that I find I'm completely tired of this virus. I mean, this virus is tiresome. I mean, it is it is exhausting. Uh, it is mentally fatiguing. All of that is true. But that can be true while at the same time, I'm still saying to myself, yeah, but I've still got to do what's right here. I've still got to follow the right behaviors and I've still got to do what everyone else is doing. We've got to coordinate to try and fight it. However tired we are of it, the consequences of giving up are worse. And what the behavioral evidence shows is that that logic predominates. And when human societies are under crisis, not always, but most of the time, what they actually pull together is, what they actually do is pull together and cooperate. And they can do that for extended periods of time. This is something that's a bit of a, my own personal reaction to this, but I felt sometimes a bit like a teenager in school that you're never quite sure of what the right thing to do when you're talking to your friends, because some friends take the rules less seriously and some take them very seriously. Is there any peer pressure that is more influential or stronger? Is it the peer pressure to follow the rules or is it the peer pressure to break the rules? Uh, that's a really great question. I mean, I hadn't thought of the analogy to being a teenager before, but I mean, it, it's totally true, isn't it? I mean, when you're a teenager, so much of it is about what norms you want to follow and what communities you want to identify with that guide your behavior and how you feel about that. And that's so much Even part. though you don't want to do it and you and you know what's wrong. <laughs> yeah, you know, that, that's so much part of growing up and understanding how these systems work. I really, I really like that analogy. I mean, 
yes, there are definite differences in the different kind of powers that peer pressure has. And leadership is very important in that regard. I mean, obviously, people who we respect and we look up to and people who are in coordinating and leading roles, their behavior is particularly important. And that's why we have the expression in ordinary English of leading by example. Well, there is behavioral evidence to support the idea that leading by example is a genuine phenomenon that will get people to follow and to you know, do what they're supposed to do and coordinate their behavior accordingly. So that is a really good question. It's also interesting that people will adapt their behavior quite markedly depending on what groups they're in. So you might find there are some people who are complying better when they're in family circumstances than when they're in friendship circumstances because they see different norms around them and they adapt to those norms. One way you know that we do that actually is, I mean, if you go into, a, well, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to make a generalization from me here, quite confident that I'm not the only person that feels this. Okay. <laughs> and if I go into a shop and I see everybody else is being really careful and is wearing a mask and is keeping their distance, am I more or less likely to be really careful and wear a mask and keep my distance compared to if I go into a shop where everyone's being a little bit sloppy about it? And of course you do, you respond to the circumstances that are around you to a very considerable degree. How much does the impact of politicians have on ordinary people now? Because there is a a, a large um, conversation, I guess, even before Golfgate, of how people don't respect politicians like they used to. You know, they're not seen as you know these beacons of uh, light and good behaviour as they as they would have been in the past. So, does their behaviour actually impact on people's own actions? There is evidence that it does, but we need to be quite careful here because we're in quite unprecedented territory. So we do know, to draw the analogy to the Dominic Cummings um, story in the UK, uh, Boris Johnson's advisor who went on his trip to Durham and Barnard Castle and all the rest of it, um, if you make that analogy, there were some behavioral studies that were done after those incidents that showed pretty persuasively, I think, that that story had an impact on the compliance with public health guidelines of the general public. So there was a fall off in compliance following the breaking of the coming story and the shenanigans that followed with him uh, attempting, shall I say, to explain what he did. Um, so there is some evidence even in this pandemic that it can have that effect. But I go back to what you said right at the start of this. It's it's also possible that it might actually drive slightly more kind of bloody-minded cohesiveness among the rest of us when a group of politicians behave like this, that almost as if it kind of pulls us together in a funny way. So I, I wouldn't like to prejudge the data, and I haven't seen any data yet on uh, compliance and how it's varied across this time period, uh, but it's going to have an effect. Um, it's bound to have an effect uh, and it'll have multiple effects. And I mean, one of the ones I'm particularly concerned about at the moment is now is a really important time for improving our public health communication because we're facing a spike. And what is happening here is a very large distraction from that. I mean, you know, ways I know that is seeing things getting squeezed out of the media agenda that are important pieces of information because we're all debating which politician should resign and why and who said what about it recently. So there's a big element as well of, it removing not just it being disillusioning for some people to see leaders behave in this way, leading members of society to behave in this way, but also it makes it harder for the people who are genuinely trying to get the public health messaging right. Does it also damage trust in all institutions rather than because one of the things that has struck me about this event is it was a kind of a second tier political event. You know, it wasn't exactly, you know, the top echelons of political society there bar those three men who we've, we've been discussing the most often. But everyone else there, you know, a few sen handful of senators and, and former senators. Um, but does will it have an impact on everybody from the Taoiseach to the, the rest of the sitting judges in the Supreme Court? 
That's a really good question. I need to be quite careful here. I'm a behavioral scientist, not a pundit or a political commentator, but I think it is interesting the degree to which, in particular, the three party leaders in the coalition have kind of distanced themselves from the event and try to get themselves on the side of the good guys, namely the members of the general public who are complying. I think it's really interesting that that's happened and you described it as a kind of second tier political event. It's almost as if um, you know, our current leadership has tried to suggest this is some sort of throwback to yesteryear that, you know, is, is a kind of um, anomaly, if you like, and has tried to distance themselves and, and assert some kind of mainstream now that's much more with the people and is utterly disapproving of this. Uh, I, I, I'm not suggesting there's any artifice in that. That may be very genuine and heartfelt, but I think from a political point of view, it's probably very wise because it helps us to try to generate a cohesive response to something that potentially is quite divisive. Is there any behavioral research into why some or a lot of politicians behave in a way that they do treat themselves as differently to the ordinary citizen? Yes. Um, it's not my particular research area, but there's been a number of studies over the years that have looked at the behavior of people who get themselves into roles that have elevated status. And one of the real problems there is that quite often they start to believe that they operate within a world that genuinely does have different rules from the rest of the world. And of course, to some extent, that's true. I mean, to some extent, all kind of elites generate their own cultures and not all of that one could describe as bad. Um, it's probably important that to some degree elites do that, you know, they come up with common ways of describing things. They have elements of common culture. That's part of the way societies function. But of course, if they get to the point where they view themselves as somehow invulnerable or somehow above the law, then it's absolutely gone too far. And we see that time and time again in multiple political systems. It's doubtless one of the reasons why we like democracy, because we finally get to punish them. Um, you know, and it, yes, people have studied it. And it, there is a loss of perspective that can come with positions of elevated status and power. And I think we see time and again when people do lose that sense of perspective and accordingly behave in ways that the rest of the public, you know, really cannot stand. Their behavior probably has to catch up with social media, given that the, the consequences are much more immediate now than they used to be. I think that's a really interesting point. I mean, th there is some debate about whether it's actually harder for elites to live at a distance from the general population than it used to be. And I would probably be in the school of thought that says, yeah, actually, it just is. Um, it, it's, it's harder to hide these things now and cut yourself off, if you like, or be part of some kind of elite club than used to be the case, which is not to say people don't still do it. I think they do. But I think it's probably less true than it was maybe 30 years ago. Going back to um, how the, the current situation, the restrictions that we still have imposed on our lives, how would you rate the public's ability to cope with where we are now, six months into, into this? Well, there's the obvious disappointment of facing the second spike, but one of the things I would say about that is the public expected it. So our own data generated in my lab told us that even back near the start of May, the majority of the Irish population expected there to be a second wave. So it hasn't come as a huge shock or a surprise. I think its timing maybe did surprise people. I think people were expecting it to come later as we went back into winter. Um, but I think the fact that it was expected probably helps. I think as we move towards an increase in restrictions, and hopefully they won't go any further, and hopefully we'll get infections back down again, but there are some positive elements to having done it once before. There's the element of just learning by doing. 
we could see that what happened when lockdown was first imposed, um, or the Irish version of lockdown anyway, when that was first imposed, it had a really big hit on people's mental well-being. And we could measure that and we could see it. But over a period of weeks, people's well-being began to rebound. We had more people reporting that they were spending less time in low moods, more time feeling happy, finding more ways to enjoy themselves. So people adapted. And one of the amazing things about human beings is how well they can adapt. Now, having adapted once, if lockdown measures are now reimposed or some of them are reimposed to some extent, there's a real element of learning by doing that having adapted once, we may be able to adapt better again. But against that, you've got to put the disappointment and you know the difficulty of being asked to do it again. And you know, what that means for people's future expectations, for their mental well-being, for their optimism and their hopes and so on. Because clearly, you know, this second spike is worrying people again. And, you know, although many people expected it, we were really desperately hoping we wouldn't see it. Do people get used to things? Like, and are we unlearning some of our previous social behaviours? Like, will the idea of going into Copperface Jacks like send some people into anxiety now, whereas before they would have loved an L Tuesday night there? It's a good question. And I, I, I really don't know the answer. I mean, it is true that behavioural scientists are starting to look at this. And there is some good reason and evidence to believe that it will have some long term impacts on people's behaviour. I mean, one simple way to think about that is, you know, we now belong to a generation of people that knows far more about how a respiratory virus is transmitted than we probably ever wanted to. Uh, we can't unlearn that knowledge. Uh, that knowledge will stay with us. And it will probably therefore you know, have an impact on how we interact with other humans for the rest of our lives, because we're in the generation that got hit with this and had to think about it and had to really understand it. And that's likely to have some impact. How strong they're going to be, I'm not so sure. I mean, the ones that are really going to change your habits, one of the things that always happens when a shock to people's lifestyles occurs is that they try some new things and they get rid of some old things. And one of the things we know from evidence is that when people experiment a bit, they usually surprise themselves. So we tend to be quite stuck in our ways. Habits are super efficient things that allow us to concentrate on, we want, on what we want to concentrate on and get most things done automatically and routinely in our lives. But habits also lock us into particular ways of doing things and they prevent us trying different things. And when you get a shock to the system like this, one of the things that happens is you break some habits, you try some new things, and many of those turn out to be things when you experiment and do new things that it turns out you like them more than you thought you would. So there are likely to be changes in people's lifestyles that they stick with um, for the long term. And probably some of those will be very beneficial. I love jigsaws now, for example. Well, for me, it's crossword. <laughs> yeah, there we go. Uh, God, we're very quaint, aren't we? As well as the golf gate thing, there's also been a lot of questioning of the restrictions by certain uh, interest groups, lobby groups, be it the vintners um, from the pubs or the GA who have vocally questioned some aspects um, of the restrictions and have asked for explanations of why they're impacted. And it kind of puts people, I guess, into groups of, well, you love sport and you want to be able to go watch sport. And therefore, it's not fair that those people who love movies can go to the cinema. Um, will those kind of campaigns impact people's um, ability to stick with the restrictions or to stick with the rules? So there's a lot in your question there. One is straightforward, that there is a danger that we factionalize. And 
if we do that, then we undermine that kind of community identity that has been so important in how we've responded to this virus so far. If people break down into factions, it's then much harder to get them to coordinate their behavior and all agree to do the same thing that they need to do to fight this virus. So that's a very important um, aspect of this. Another is what behavioral scientists call um, trade-off denial which is after we came over the peak having flattened the curve and we began to lift restrictions suddenly in a way it was a harder process because we had to trade off the amount of risk we were willing to take against the benefits of reopening different parts of society and we're still engaging in that trade-off now and we can see it with respect to trying to get the schools to reopen and what else we might not do in order that we can keep infection low enough to get the schools reopened so we're playing those trade-off games all the time the problem with what some of the lobby groups have done, I think, and I'm not going to comment on specific cases because this is a general point, but one of the problems is if people only talk about one side of the trade-off, so all they do is hammer on about the amount of economic damage that's being caused or how much grief their members are putting up with or you know what it is that we're depriving ourselves of without accepting that there is some risk on the other side without accepting that it is a trade-off. This is what behavioral scientists call trade-off denial. And it's quite pernicious. Um, it, it causes people uh, essentially not to make decisions as smartly as they would if they were genuinely weighing up a trade-off and considering both sides of it. And I think it's really important those lobby groups at least accept, sure, they might want to highlight the economic implications and the social implications, but it's also really important that they accept that their activity involves a degree of risk and that what we're doing is we're balancing that risk against the benefit. Is there any way for people to, I guess, tips to deal with that trade-off denial? So um, like say for my own personal example, I'm a, a GA, I'm a camogie player. So when I hear the GA, I'm really trying to like, don't just be biased for them, think about what they're saying. But is there any tips for people to try and deal with that trade-off denial or the apparent contradictions within the rules? I think what's important there is to pick people up on it. I and mean, that's a pretty straightforward point, but I think it's true. So if we have a lobby group that is only talking about one side of this, I think it's really important that we make them focus their attention on the other side, because one of the things about trade-offs, of course, is you can make them better. So what I mean by that is if the energies and efforts of a group that represents a particular activity or industry are going into what they can do to reduce the risk, rather than going into trying to pretend it's not there and tell everybody about the other side of the trade-off, then I think that's much better. And I think we have to pick people up and we have to ask them those difficult questions. But there are real difficult questions for the whole of society in this. I mean, we asked some of them in a study that we did, and it's the same study I mentioned a, a few minutes ago where we were talking about uh, people's expectations for a second wave. We asked people which restrictions should be lifted first. You know, and one of the fascinating things about that was that while the general public said on average, look, you know, if you get restaurants and pubs open, that'll be really good for our mental well-being. When we actually asked them what should be open first, those things went right to the bottom of the list. And the focus was on we need to get schools open. We need to get healthcare back up and running. We need to get transport and social connectedness back. Those are more important than the leisure and recreation activities. So when we asked them about sport and other recreational activities and social activities like restaurants and pubs, they went right to the bottom of the list of what should be done first. So it's as if the public themselves actually recognized that they shouldn't be driven only by the upside, they shouldn't be driven only by what will be positive for them. They can see that we've got to have a coordinated approach. And in particular, I mean, schools came out very highly on that survey. So, I mean, it really is true that this idea that we should reduce risk in other parts of our society in order to try to get the schools back open 
primarily because of the huge unfairness that this is producing on kids of a particular generation. That idea is very widely held within society, and it's probably uh, one that the authorities will keep pushing, and they'll push with quite a lot of sympathy based on our data. Does that indicate that the messaging from government wasn't as mixed or as confused as commentators have made out in the past couple of weeks? I think it's true to say that, and I think everyone in the system would admit that over the last couple of weeks, the messaging has not been as good as it was previously. And there are all all sorts of reasons for that. Um, I think it's starting to improve again, and I think that's really important. And I think landing the argument about why it is reasonable to have classes of school children that might have 20 or 30 people in them, while at the same time saying you can only have six people in your house, why that is not a contradiction, why it is fair, why it's a reasonable response to this virus, that communication is really, really important. And it really is the case that what we're doing is we're saying, look, we will take more risk in areas where the benefits are greater or where the damage that's being done is greater and we're trying to correct it, which is what's happening with kids' education, than we will in whether you know, it's okay for people to have garden parties and dinner parties. You know, and I think that's, that's the right uh, kind of messaging. We have to make those decisions as a society. And that doesn't mean we're all going to agree about them. Different people have different values and different people have different priorities. Although what I would say in that case is, as I said, the public is actually behind that. But the messaging has to make clear that the guidelines are not telling you what is safe and what is not safe. What the guidelines are doing is they are saying in each area, how much risk are we willing to take in this area, given what we're sacrificing? And that's the key thing that the messaging has to get across. One of the areas that we've been really focused on um, over the last six months is the amount of misinformation and disinformation um, that COVID-19 has brought to Ireland. It's something that we haven't seen in in as huge numbers as we have um, since since the outbreak. Have you seen evidence of it impacting people's behaviour, any of this misinformation, be it accidental or, um, you know, not purposeful or disinformation, which is actually put out there as conspiracy theories or whatever? I've certainly heard a lot of people articulate views that I don't think are correct. And what I mean by that, I mean, I'm not a public health expert, I'm a behavioral scientist. But what I mean by that is um, there are rumors that start or get first reported on about the science behind the virus that I've seen then grow into you know, utterances that are being made amongst ordinary people where I'm pretty damn confident that what they've got is wrong and is exaggerated. And there's some data already that show this. So, for example, there's quite a sizable proportion of people who uh, think that there is some particularly vicious second strain of the virus. And you, what you start to see there is that what's really happening is there are some true stories that then get exaggerated um, or get taken out of proportion. Some of those stories are genuinely damaging because if what we're trying to do is explain the logic of a coherent response to people and at the moment an awful lot of policy when you think about it is premised on the idea that you know we are going to be in this for a period of time until we get a vaccine but the chances are that we will get a vaccine at some point in the next year or so and that it's likely to be at least partially effective so policy is getting us through the period towards that some of those um, exaggerated beliefs or rumors or even conspiracy theories that suggest something else is going on than what the public authorities are telling you is going on, they can be quite damaging to trying to coordinate people's activity because a common basis of understanding and belief makes it easier for everyone to get on the same page and say, look, this is the strategy we're taking and it might work. So yeah, these stories are important and I have seen a number of them. I think 
we're inclined to think of too many of them as being kind of malicious conspiracies, whereas quite often they're just sloppy reporting and exaggeration and rumor. Yeah, and that's a lot of what we've found as well. Like a lot of it is unintentional sharing of um, information because people think they're being helpful rather than um, more, I guess, uh, nefarious uh, disinformation that that other countries would see a lot of. Um, final question, because you mentioned there the vaccine and, you know, even if we do get a vaccine, it's not going to be in time for, for this winter. How is a change in season going to impact people's behavior and ability to cope with restrictions? It's a good question, um, and I'm really not sure because we've never been here before. We do have data suggesting that people will make sacrifices for long periods of time, provided the conditions are right, as I described earlier, but that will become more difficult as we head into the winter. On the upside, seasons change slowly, um, so people can adapt their behavior as they go along. One of the things I think is really important is that we keep spending time outside. We can see in our well-being data that people's well-being goes up during this crisis, the more time they spend outside. And we can also see in our own data that the difference between being indoors and outdoors is larger than the public thinks. And the reason I can say that is what we did was we ran a study where we had a group of experts, including many of the experts on NEFIT, actually. We had a group of about 50 experts in Ireland who looked at different social situations and rated the riskiness of them. And then we had a representative sample of the public do the same thing. And generally the public was pretty good. Uh, so it knew, you know, that the degree of social distancing mattered, how many people were in the gathering mattered, um, you know, whether people wearing masks mattered. Generally they were pretty good. But the thing that they actually downplayed relative to the experts was the difference between being indoors or outdoors. The experts place much greater weight on the risk of transmission when you're outdoors versus when you're indoors. And it's really good for our well-being. So I think one of the really important things to be doing as we go into the winter, of course, it's harder to be outdoors, but we need to gear ourselves up for that and get out there anyway. You know, now is not uh, a winter to skimp on your clothing. <laughs> get the good clothing and get out there and do things outside that you normally do inside wherever you can, because that makes a real difference both to your well-being and also to the risk of infection. So therefore, what you can actually do and how many people you can see. It might be the one thing that makes Irish people actually equip themselves for the weather during our winter. <laughs> Thank you so much, Pete, for coming in to us and explaining all that. It's been really fascinating. There's some really great bits of information in there for us. So thank you so much. You're very welcome. Thank you for listening to The Explainer and a big thank you to Pete for joining us on this episode. If you read the journal, you may have seen our appeal in the past few months for you to support our journalism. It's a difficult time for media as advertising revenues fell drastically during the COVID pandemic. But we are and want to keep providing you and the rest of our 800,000 daily users with valuable, accessible journalism. Loads of you felt it was important for society to have that open access to news and good information like this podcast and have contributed. A lot of you asked if there was a way you could give more regularly, and we now have options for you to become a regular supporter. And if this is something you'd like to do, please head to thejournal.ie forward slash contribute. This episode of The Explainer was brought to you by executive producer Christine Bowen, producer Aoife Barry, and assistant producer and tech operator Nikki Ryan. If you're enjoying these episodes, please leave us a review and rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. And more importantly, share with a friend who you would think will enjoy them. Thank you and catch you next time.